the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. To have faith in God is not a stagnant state. It's a journey. As a believer, we should grow in our knowledge of God and His Word. Walk with Alan Cutting and many other believers as together we walk the believer's journey. Aloha and welcome again to the believer's journey. I'm so glad uh, that you're joining us today. We are having our special uh, questions on the fly. This will be number eight, and this will be pretty good. Uh, my moderator and host today is Susan, my lovely wife. And um, so it should be really good. I'd like to go ahead and thank my sponsors. We have a new sponsor, Allison and Thompson Insurance. From the, They're out of San Antonio, so we want to welcome them. And it's just been a really nice year so far. I mean, we're only a few days into it, a couple of weeks, but, you know, let's all cross our fingers and, and keep it going. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Susan, I just wanted to ask you, you're, you're kind of uh, involved in your church with um, choir. So you, we started a new church and they're starting a choir. So tell us about your choir and what's going on and what, what the, what's, happening there because not a lot of churches have choirs anymore well our choir we have a saturday night choir and a sunday morning choir i'm part of the saturday night choir group and over the christmas holidays what we did was a community choir called the san antonio worship collective where members from other churches who like to sing or Play in an orchestra, we're volunteering to be part of our Christmas program, and we did a service at our church and at another church, and it was wonderful. Everyone enjoyed participating, so we're looking forward to doing something similar in the spring, not necessarily associated with Easter, but just to be able to provide choir um, gatherings at other churches throughout our community. So you said this is a community the community choir where anybody can join? Uh, yes, you don't have to be a member of our church in order to uh, sing in this choir. Uh, the music is provided uh, through uh, Google Drive, so you can learn the songs and practice them on your own when we do this. Uh, there's normally a couple of rehearsals beforehand, and so... Uh, it's just a great way to be able to sing. If your church doesn't have that opportunity, you can join us and still maintain your membership in services at your own church. It's really kind of neat because in the last several uh, programs we've had, uh, Michael Mata was on a couple of them, and we talked, I think, once with uh, – uh, Lisa, Grace, and Ron, we talk about community and a lot of things about joining together in community. And what I like what you're saying is that uh, as a community of believers, we can come together in one place or different places and actually sing in different churches and have this, what they call a community choir. 
Right. And it's especially important since a lot of churches do not have choirs any longer. They just do worship bands or acoustic uh, services. So this provides an opportunity for those who've spent many years singing in their church choirs uh, before and don't have that opportunity anymore. Yeah. And I think that choirs are a really neat, neat way to uh, minister because I think you actually do provide ministry when you're singing in a choir and representing the Lord in that way. Well, the purpose of the choir is to bring people into the heart of worship. And as Ray Jones, our former choir director at Community Bible Church, said, God isn't impressed with our talent. It has to do with our heart. But then he also said it's okay to sing the right notes. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I know that um, we have uh, had Tommy Walker in our church several times. And I was noticing uh, he does a lot of YouTube videos. And um, his church has a choir. And he's got a band in the whole nine yards. And it's really nice. Um, I'm hoping to contact him someday. Maybe we'll have him on our program. That would be amazing. It would be amazing. So anyway, so um, let's go forward with uh, what we have. We really, um, I don't know how many questions we have there, but I'd like to go ahead and uh, start with them. Anyway, so go ahead and ask me and let's fire away. Okay, we have questions from all over the world, from the Philippines, United Kingdom, Moldova, Eastern Europe, the United States. Uh, the first question is a combination of two. We had someone in the United Kingdom and Moldova ask something similar. Uh, the one from the United Kingdom says, My priest said that paradise is heaven, and when we die, we go straight to heaven. He referenced the thief on the cross as proof. I've also heard this is not so. Can you please explain what is true here? And the similar question from Moldova was, many times I hear people, even leaders, quote, that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in heaven. But the scripture says paradise, not heaven. Is paradise and heaven the same thing? So um, I believe you'd be able to answer both of those <laughs> questions together um, because it seems like they're asking, you know, similar things. Yeah. Those are pretty similar. It has actually two different answers. Um, so let's let's start off with one that's the easiest. Okay, when it talks, when Jesus says, "I will see you in paradise," what's really important to understand is um, the New Testament is really when Jesus is talking to the people, he's not talking to a bunch of Christians who've been through church and saved and gone to the church. I mean, this is not reality. What is happening is he's speaking to the people of his day, the people who are Jews, okay? And in Jewish teaching, in Jewish uh, uh, history, uh, you'll find that they have a belief that when they die, they go to a place called paradise. And you'll find this in the Talmud. You'll find this in writings uh, in, in Hebrew and Judaism. And so they go to uh, paradise. And the difference is in what, what happens when you die is if you've lived a righteous life, a life that's honoring to God himself, 
then what happens is that you go to paradise and you're in what they call the bosom of Abraham, which what that means is that you are protected from and when to at least until the resurrection. They believe in a resurrection. Um, the unfortunate part that we uh, in today's world um, from Ju most of people in Judaism is that a lot of them don't believe in any resurrection. They don't believe in any afterlife. They don't believe in all this stuff. But a pure Judaism does and old writings they do. So in the times of days of Jesus, you even had a group called the Sadducees that didn't believe in the afterlife. Okay, the other ones asked the question, you know, about the woman who was married to a guy. He dies, so she's sent off to the brother. He dies, another brother. So who's she married to when she's in heaven? And that's when Jesus says this famous quote, you know, well, there's no marriage in heaven. And that kind of calmed them down. But they're basically, you know, that's what they're, they're thing. But when we talk about paradise and we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about uh, the bosom of Abraham. And if you remember the parable that Jesus taught about the rich guy and the guy that ate the crumbs on the ground, the poor guy, and the guy who uh, was on the eating the crumbs who was poor, he dies and he goes to paradise into the bosom of Abraham. And it says that. And this comes, this is what I'm talking about, what the old teaching of the Old Testament was, is that where he's in the bosom of Abraham, where when the rich guy dies, he goes to Hades and he's wanting his tongue touched with water so that he will feel the coolness and so forth. And we don't want to mix that up with, well, one's in heaven, one's in hell, and they can talk to each other. That's just a parable to explain what's going to happen, not what really is, in fact, the, the true thing here. Um, so... Um, and I truly don't believe that people in hell are going to be talking to people in heaven. It's just not not in the scripture other than that parable. So when we look at the, the teaching of he's going to be in, in the bosom of Abraham, he's in paradise. Okay. So when Jesus is talking to the guy on the cross, he's telling him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the same term. That word paradise literally means a place of rest or a garden. Okay, so to to claim that it's heaven, okay, that's a mistake. That's mistaken the language itself, and it's also a mistake in the teaching of Judaism. You know, eight hundred years before this time frame that Jesus is alive, it's a totally different. And so we need to understand that our teaching that paradise is heaven is incorrect. Incorrect because Jesus isn't talking to us. He's talking to Jews that would understand what paradise was uh, or is in the teaching, which was a place of rest, and he will be in the bosom of Abraham, protected until the resurrection. And that's really important. So no, heaven is not the same thing as paradise. Paradise is totally different. Okay, When we talk about heaven and we look in Revelation, heaven is where you see the throne of God. There's the crystal sea there. You have the, you know, the beasts, you have the elders and so forth, and this is heaven, how John describes it, which is not what we're looking at when we talk about paradise. Well, I hope that cleared things up. <laughs> <laughs>
But that brings to mind a question for me, for those who are of the Catholic faith or the Orthodox faith, would they confuse paradise with purgatory? Because purgatory is like a way station before going to heaven, although to my understanding, it's a place where you have to be prayed into heaven from that location. So purgatory, and, and there may be more information than this, but I think originally where the problem lies is purgatory didn't come from that type of teaching, but the Apocrypha, which back about 400 years before Jesus, they, there was a lot of writings about angel worship and things like this, which eventually the Jews outlawed. They, they weren't even allowed to have this in print. And it talked about praying people into heaven. It talked about a way station and praying to angels and things like this. So I believe that when you look at these other, you know, denominations like Catholicism and so forth, uh, where they originally get this information is from the Apocrypha, which they added into their Bible in the 1500s A.D. Well, how does the idea of purgatory relate to paradise for them. So um, the difference is paradise is a place you've already you've already set your your where you're going. Okay. You're just waiting for the, the resurrection to get to the judgment to either to go and in, walk into heaven basically once once you're uh, you go through the resurrection. Purgatory, from what I understand, is that, you know, when you die, if you're not just quite ready to go to heaven, you go to the in-between place, and hopefully enough people will buy a lot of candles and pray a lot of prayers that you'll get out of purgatory to go to heaven. And I guess if you don't, I guess you're stuck there for a long time. I don't know if you you get the alternative of hell. I'm not sure. Uh, you being a former Catholic. Well, that's why I'm asking these questions. <laughs> I have no idea. So I don't know that if you if you don't get prayed into heaven from purgatory that you just remain there forever or what uh, that I don't know that's probably one of my uh, I have never studied that to that degree. Well, it it is a question I'm sure some people uh, of those faiths if they're um, learning about paradise is purgatory a finishing school so to speak before you get to paradise before you get to heaven <laughs> there's just so many questions that's an interesting way to put that but the misnomer is when we die today people have been teaching this is that when we die the question is do we go straight to heaven uh well there's a lot of problems with that if if you go straight to heaven now well then how are you going to be you know raptured how you know how are you going to you know because it says the body will will leave the ground you'll meet him in the air well if you're already there then how can you be raptured if all people are going to be raptured all believers so that's a problem you start having those kind of things with teaching then you have contradictions in the scripture and those teachings we have to we have to go beyond just the words in that verse. You have to go into the, the history of Judaism. You have to go into the history of the Old Testament. And you have to find what does it say in the scriptures. You know, there's a lot of writing that that as Christians, as you know, believers in Jesus who are not Jews, we tend to ignore all that. In fact, a lot of Christians don't even read the Old Testament. 
And yet a lot of our information comes from the Old Testament to help us understand the New Testament. So when we talk about, you know, paradise, when we talk about the bosom of Abraham, this is something the Jews would understand in Judaism because this is what was taught there from long ago in Scripture, where today we don't see that, especially in the Christian, you know, world. We don't talk about it, teach it. So we just say, oh, it must be heaven. And to make it easy, we start saying that. And that's not accurate. So, in other words, the teachings been pretty much oversimplified just to make it easy to understand that you go to heaven or hell based on your uh, beliefs and how you live your life. Yeah. And and I know there's a lot of people out there that pastors and so forth that say, well, you know, there's no such thing as a holding area. Well, that's what paradise is. It's a holding area. But. It's also, if we understand the scriptures, Jesus says, today I will be with you in paradise. So it's not like a holding area where Jesus isn't going to be. So the belief is, is that in paradise, Jesus will be there. So if all people who die, who are in right standing with God, okay, go to paradise, the understanding is that Jesus will be there as well. So when we die, you know, as believers, then we will be with Jesus right away. It's not that, you know, we're in heaven, but it's in that we're in paradise with him. So the, the right answer is when we die, where do we go? We go to be with the Lord. That is the right, correct answer. You, that's, you know. It's just the address is unknown. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, still on that topic, another side note, then after the rapture and the judgments, then paradise would cease to exist and Jesus and God the Father would be together. Not necessarily. Again, if you go back to the old okay. writings, it gets more defined than, you know, it's more difficult to, to just put it together. I mean, they believe, there's actually, they believe that paradise is like Eden and paradise is going to come back and paradise is going to be part of what we're going to have in, in eternally, you know. So basically... It's not that it just goes away. It's actually the place where we will have to live with Jesus in paradise. Well, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. Yeah. And it might be that paradise becomes here on earth. I mean, we're going to have a, a new earth. And, uh, you know, when we talk about going to heaven, well, actually, in the, in the millennium, what we have is the new Jerusalem comes down. God is going to be there. That's going to be where he's at. And Jesus is going to be here, and all of us are going to be here who have passed away and who are not uh, living for the, th the thousand years there here on earth. And the assumption is that um, it, when Jesus creates the new earth, is he creating this earth as the new earth, or is he creating a different planet? I mean, there's all kinds of I wonder if or what about this or that that there's no real solid answer for. But there is a theory that this will be, this earth, when we make it a new earth, will be paradise. So I guess as believers, we don't need to be concerned about the details and just know that we need to make God our Lord and Savior and do what we're supposed to do and then things will work out. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about the address, as you put it. The, the key thing is, where, who is my relationship with? Is it solid with Jesus? And then, 
you know, knowing that I'll be with him forever and ever. And that's really all that matters. I mean, as far as all the details, we, if we get hung up with that, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We need to focus on Jesus, not the end, end place we're going to be. So all the controversy really isn't all that important. Just to know that there is a difference and right. how you explained it. Exactly. Okay. Well, moving on to another question. Um, this is from someone in Texas has asked, from what I've been told and understand, the teachings of the Bible today are for those who follow Jesus of the New Testament, but not the law of the Old Testament. If Jesus saves us from the law, and that law is only to point out our sin, then why do you believe we need to observe any of the Pharisee-driven legalistic laws that cannot save you? Oh, that's a mouthful. I guess he had a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's, let's start with number one. I'm going to have to refer back to this question because there's a lot in it. Number one, parts. number one, Jesus doesn't save us from the law. Jesus saves us from sin. He saves us from the consequences of our sin. Okay, of our sin as a personal, my personal sin, and also from my sin nature. So he doesn't save us from the law. That, if that's being taught, that's, that's absolutely a wrong teaching because Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but fulfill it. So he's not getting rid of the law. And he's not saying that we need to save us from the law. He's saying that the law is important. Okay. Um, so it's important to understand he didn't save us from the law. He didn't save us for lots of different things, but he did save us from the consequences of sin, both our personal as well as our sin nature. Um, as far as the Pharisees, that part, last part about the legalistic part of the Pharisees. Well, I'm wondering if this person who wrote the question is talking about uh, denominations that have what would be interpreted as legalistic uh, laws, certain things, and that uh, they're compelled to observe these. Right. And I understand, but without having to point out denominations, let's just answer the, we'll just yeah. get to the. Because there are people that aren't in denominations that have those same kind of questions. Okay. And I understand there's a lot of legalist legalism in certain denominations, but that's high, yeah, it's really hard there. to know where he was coming from. So he or she. But read the last part about the. Uh, it said, "If uh, Jesus saves us from the law, and that law is only to point out our sin, why do you believe we need to observe any of the Pharisee-driven legalistic law that cannot save you?" Okay. So let's go, let's go to the second part there of that question where it says the law only points to our sin. Well, the law in the day of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and the reason I say Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul brings this up a lot in his writings about, you know, pointing to our sin and so forth. But the law of that day is a law that they were dealing with that was totally perverted. It was it was totally taken apart and destroyed and and uh, even when Jesus did things, they said he was breaking the law of Moses, and he says, "No, I'm not." You know, so basically, the law was 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 done away with in in its perfection. When God gave the law in the Old Testament, that law was really good. 
okay? He gave a law that was a ceremonial law, which really we don't need to uh, follow any longer because Jesus fulfilled that ceremonial law. You know, we don't have to go to church and bring lambs or birds or whatever and sacrifice them and put the blood on the altars. We don't need to do that any longer because Jesus became the one and final sacrifice for all time. So the ceremonial law is to us doesn't need to be taken care of any longer. It's done. Okay. But you have a civil laws and you have moral laws. Those laws are still intact. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we no longer have to be holy. We no longer have to worry about whether we kill somebody or not or murder somebody. It's okay to have uh, adultery because those laws are gone. No, those laws are just as in effect then, now as they were then. In fact, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter and John, all those writings talk about living a moral life that have to do with the fact that they're written in the law of Moses. Okay, God sent these things down for us, like in the in the moral laws, so that we are holy. We become like Him. That's how you. That's all about the law is to become like the God, and and to be holy and to live in this ma manner that is really of the law. If we look at the law as something that's just a do and don't, a right and a wrong, a up and a down, like a like a legalistic type of thing, then we're looking at the raw inc law incorrectly. The law was, was written to help us establish a, a good and proper relationship with God. And it also was, it was written to help establish a good and proper relationship with other people. And it helped understand the law came after the, the people, the Hebrews left Egypt and they were living under oppression. And so when they're under oppression and they do something wrong or partially wrong, they don't know or didn't know what their punishment was going to be. It could be severe one day and hardly anything the next. There was no real uh, something to substantiate what the rule was. That's oppression. So what God did was he says, okay, we're going to set some rules here so you understand the guidelines of what is going too far and what is not, you know, um, like he gave us the Ten Commandments, okay? So uh, when he says, you know, you shall not steal from one another or lie one another, I mean, that's that's the law. Of course, we shouldn't continue to do that. It, it's not a legalistic. That just helps you in your relationship with one another live better and honor one another. That's what the law, civil laws are all about. Now, you have more civil laws that deal with other things that require maybe punishment or some kind of um, retribution. For example, uh, they have child support. I mean, if a guy gets a girl pregnant, you know, uh, there's a law for that. Well, he needs to provide child support for that child if he's not married to that child, uh, mother. Okay, so you have these laws that we have today. And it's all about the working the community, if you will, together so that everybody is in uniform here. And when we talk about the moral law, the moral law is living a right life, living a holy life, you know, living in obedience, living in righteousness. That, that is explicitly taught in the New Testament, and it never, ever takes away from the law. So the law of the Pharisees, the legalistic way of the Pharisees, absolutely do not need to follow their law because their law was perverted. They perverted that law like crazy. You know, 
uh, it wasn't actually the Pharisees, it was the scribes. The scribes are the ones who changed the laws and rewrote the laws to because uh, they had to have something to do, I guess, you know. And so when Jesus came along and he was doing things that were very godly, and they're saying, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, that's against the law. He's like, no, it's not. It's your made-up garbage that you did just for to control people, basically, is what they were doing. And Paul is dealing with this, with the, with the Judaizers, and that's why Paul writes a lot about this in Romans and so forth. So, you know, you, I don't know how you look at the law. The way I see the law, it's all about relationship. You know, if you're seeing the law with a, as, as it is only about legalism, then you're looking at the Pharise, Pharisee law type law, not the law of God. Well, that sounds really good. It's a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to be thorough. Okay. Uh, we have another question uh, from the Philippines. Uh, this individual said, If Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, and my priest, do I need to keep going to confession at my church and confess my sins to my priest? <clears throat> okay. Um, without get, getting stepping on any toes of denomination, because I know in the Catholic Church, and I'm not sure if this is true in the Orthodox Church, I, I have no idea, but I think it might be. Um, their order of things is that you go to confession, you know, regularly to confess your sins. And I guess it goes up the chain of command from uh, all the way to the Pope, to God himself and so forth. But in the Bible, in Matthew 27, something significant happens. Jesus is on the cross and he dies. And they're in the temple of in Jerusalem. Uh, is separated. You have the Holy of Holies, which is separated by a huge, thick, tall curtain, drape, or whatever it is. It's, it's really wide. And the only person to go back there is the high priest. And the only time he can go back there, you know, toward the um, covenant of the ark to put blood on is the Day of Atonement when, when people would sacrifice their animals for the salvation of sins. Okay, so on the other side, you have the people on the other side of that. Other than that, you have Gentiles and so forth and women. So when the veil, the curtain tore, it tore from the very top, which was unreachable by regular people. I mean, it just can't reach that tall. Tore all the way down to the bottom. It signifies the fact that now we don't need to go to a high priest to confess our sins. We don't need to go to a high priest and... and give him uh, on an altar our sacrifice. What it says is we have direct access to God himself. So going by the scripture, I know that in the Old Testament, it was this way. The Catholic Church, and I, like I said, I think the Orthodox Church follows same suit. Maybe not with animals, but you go to your priests and so forth. Um, we can, we have the right to go directly to God. Now, is it wrong to go to your priest and and uh, confess your sins, I would say not. You know, I, I think that's perfectly fine if you really have a need or you want to. But the, what you need to do before and above all things is, is confess your sins to Jesus. I mean, he is basically your Lord, your priest, your king, you know, 
and he is the one you go to. He is the one that actually saves you from your sin. He is the one that you know you're you're he's your master. Well, that sounds like a really good answer. And I guess though, for those people who do follow the Catholic faith, because that is a step in the sacramental process, <clears throat> I guess it depends on how you feel about all of those things. Well, it's really hard. And I know I get a lot of questions from the Philippines. And I know most of those questions are coming from people who are steep into the Catholic, you know, denomination. But um, it doesn't mean to just draw away from the Catholic Church. It, what it means is you need to really look at the scriptures and start reading your scriptures. And I think it's important that we allow ourselves the freedom to read and allow the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts in what is real. That's why I say if you want to go to the Catholic Church, if you want to go to the priest, that's perfectly fine. But understand, I mean, there's a lot of people who go to their pastor and confess their stuff in, in the evangelical churches. But uh, Jesus is really your Lord. He's the one that saves you. He's the one that you follow the teachings of, not the priests, not the pastors. And that's mm -hmm. why it's so important to understand that. Okay, well, that, I think, helps give some direction and choice to the individual who wrote that question. Uh, another question, this one, again, is from the United States. If I prayed the prayer of salvation with my pastor at the end of our church service, am I guaranteed eternal life with Jesus, even if I don't stop my sinful lifestyle? <laughs> it sounds like wishful thinking. Well... It's the old argument, Armenian Wesleyan against Calvinism. You know, you can lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And, you know, everybody tries to get me into this argument. Um, what I will say on something like that, um, Jesus, God calls us to a life of holiness. Okay. Jesus is our ultimate... Um, example to live by we are to follow the teachings of the scriptures we are to follow the teachings of jesus and if you are and paul says things like you know there he gives a list i mean in different books you know if you if you're a believer then you need to live like this 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 and then he goes you know and if if you're doing these things you know all these other things then basically then there's no place for the kingdom of god for you so I think we, and he's not talking to non-believers, okay? Well, he's talking to the church, okay? So when he writes to uh, Philippi, the church of Philippians or so forth, you know, he gives these, these lists. And there's one in Colossians, there's one in Galatians. You know, we need to take that seriously. So I remember talking to somebody thinking that, you know, they were telling me that they felt it was okay to, you know, fool around on their wife, you know, because they were saved. And since they were saved, it was okay to, to live in sin like that because once they're saved, they're always saved. It was okay to you know, con people out of money and other things and cheat people because they were saved. Well, the problem is, you know, and I, even in the people who follow Calvinism, they think, well, then are you really saved if you're living like this? You know, the Bible talks about that we become a new creature in Romans. And it also says that we have to have a transformed life. 
Um, so if we transform our life, we're not living the same way. We're not living in sin. If, if at the center of your life, you're on the throne, that means that Jesus is not on the throne of your life. That means you're in control. You're doing what you want. You're just in sin as ever before. And um, basically, I would say salvation is not something you're going to be. Or actually, what I told this person is they're going to wake up one day, you know, in a place they don't want to be. So we want to live and 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 cross the line or get close to the line as possible before we get in trouble. We we human type people do this all the time. We always go to the edge. Oh, I shouldn't say always. You don't. But a lot of people go to that edge. You know, I do. I've gone to the edge. Well, how far can I really go until I get burnt or get in trouble or get, you know, which I usually end up in trouble. So and you're laughing. <laughs> but that's how human, these us people do. And the thing is that if Jesus is on the throne, then why play with fire? We wouldn't play with fire. I mean, we would, you know, we wouldn't try to do that. Uh, try to work with play with temptation it only leads to destruction it only leads to sin and why would we want to do that in the first place we're not honoring jesus we're not honoring god and if that is the premise of our life is to be honoring and glorifying jesus then we shouldn't be thinking about living in sin and the fact that we're saved because we said a prayer we're not saved because we said a prayer. We're saved because we follow the teachings of Jesus. And that is a misnomer to think because I prayed a prayer that I'm saved. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Well, I think maybe there's a misunderstanding when people are given the invitation to say the prayer at uh, a church that they think that covers everything. They don't need to do anything more. But... Uh, it's really just an invitation that's extended to them, and then they need to do the work and build a relationship from there on. And don't get me wrong, the prayer, even even the scripture, John, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation three twenty. People use that for, you know, salvation. That Jesus comes into your heart. He's knocking at the door if you let him in. John is talking to the believers it's not about salvation and so you know we use scriptures that are inappropriate for salvation mm -hmm. and i think that what we need to understand is that if we are going to be a say a believer we want to live for him then we need to honor him i i um I do and I don't like the idea that churches have a, a altar call, not an altar call, but a prayer at the end of the service. I like it when people can come forward and talk to somebody, pray with somebody. I like it if people, I've been in a church where actually more than one church where they say people who have uh, decided they want to uh, make Jesus their Lord, they come forward, they go into a room and they sit with the counselors or a counselor and they talk with somebody and they're followed up on. But in churches where you just say a prayer and goodbye, good luck, and, and uh, we'll see you next time, hopefully, cross our fingers. Well, that's no way of presenting the gospel or have salvation. And you can't think just because somebody said a prayer from that and they go on living the same way, way they did that they got saved. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, I think, uh, especially in large churches, they may feel they don't have the opportunity and resources to uh, have a discipleship plan for everybody 
who may believe that after they've said this prayer that you know they've got their golden ticket to heaven i think that's hogwash in fact i think it's a bunch of garbage i went to a church years ago here in san antonio it's called trinity baptist church and they were a large church i don't know how many thousands of people that, that went there but if you went forward in that church okay you would go down to the front and then you would, in the password talk, you would pray, and then you would follow a person in, out of the main sanctuary into rooms, and then you have counselors there that are part of the congregation that would be there to help and pray and talk to these people and give them scripture and follow up on them. This is a large church. So yes, large churches can do this. I went to a church, a church on, on the way, um, yes, in California. And they did the exact same thing. And they were huge. That church was big, thousands of people. But when somebody come forward, they would have you go into a room together with others and by yourself or others, and you, and you would do this. So these churches that don't do this any longer and they just give a prayer and goodbye, it's probably because they're under a, oh, gee, our hour is up. We've got another bunch of people coming in. We don't have time to talk to anybody. And that's terrible. So... For those who are at a church where they're asked to pray the prayer and their church doesn't offer anything, then they can seek out ways to be discipled on their own. Right. And, that, and that's unfortunate because if you're coming to a church and that happens, how do you know to seek somebody out? You don't. Unless somebody talks to you, shares with you, prays with you and says, you know, we would like to help you. Here's a Bible or here's a something to help you on your way and can we, would you fill this out and we can touch base and somebody could disciple you or, or however they want to do it. That's really the proper way. If somebody just walks away after they came to a church, maybe the first time, or maybe they go and they're not sure about stuff, but they've been attending, they say the prayer and, and walk away and they just live their life the way they do. How do you know uh, where that person is or if that person's really made a change? And we can't bank on the fact that just because they said the prayer, that that's, that's transforming, because it doesn't necessarily mean that it is transforming. Well, those of us as believers, we can also help in those situations where maybe there isn't that follow-up that is needed. If we know that person, we can work on discipling them and helping them ourselves. Well, and this is this is why I'm a strong believer, especially in large churches. I'm a strong believer in uh, small groups, okay? Sunday school classes, small groups, uh, how, whatever word you, you want to call it, you know, uh, Bible studies, that you have these where you meet with small groups of people. That way you have accountability, you have learning, you have... Uh, the things that you need, the tools that you need to actually plug in to become a growing believer in Jesus. If you don't have any of these things, then what happens is you probably fall by the wayside. And it's our responsibility as leaders or believers in a church, okay, it's our responsibility. In fact, it's our heritage, to follow up on people like this and help them and, and bring them up, invite them to your studies. I know Bible studies, they don't want people to come because, oh, we have too many people already. They just don't want you. I mean, come on, this is terrible. We're trying to build the kingdom, not throw it, push it aside. Right. Well, I think from our own experience, having worked with the missionaries in Moldova, 
we see how they actually go from the person becoming a new believer into discipleship and helping them grow. Uh, it's a complete process. I'll tell you, the churches in the United States can learn a lot from the churches in Moldova. Or other missionary churches Absolutely. around the world. E even in uh, Kenya, they do the same thing where they have small home churches. And well, we're, since we've never been there, I can't speak on that. But I do know, I spoke, listened to a person from Kenya, and they talk about their home churches, and they meet in groups, and they grow. And that's what I see in Moldova. We go there, and there's 10, 15, 20 people there. And they're growing, they're learning, and they're held accountable, and they're, they help them. They help them spiritually, physically, you know, financially. They, there's help there, and they're growing. I've seen some people who weren't Christians who came to the group, and because they were coming to the group, now they are believers. And then they turn these believers into people who are ministering. I mean, this is what we're where we need to be. And if you're just going to a great big giant church and you don't have any responsibility at all, except for attending and thinking to yourself, oh, I attended, but there's no accountability, there's no there's no small group you're involved with, then how are you really learning and growing in ministry in your own life? Right. It's not just something you do on Sunday or Saturday night. But right. It has to be part of your daily life. Exactly. Okay, uh, <clears throat> let me see uh, another question. Uh, this one is from the United Kingdom. It says, can a pastor who teaches the Bible incorrectly be a false prophet? There's another touchy one. I would say yes and no. I mean, there are probably the majority of pastors teach something wrong once or twice. Well, it depends on, the Bible has so many different ways of being interpreted. Well, and that's it. If you go by interpretation, even when I was young, I remember saying some things and teaching some things or witnessing in certain ways that now I look back, I thought, how could I ever said that? But I realized my maturity level as a believer was very minimal. I mean, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't even have a Bible the first several months that I was a Christian. So, you know, when, when you have that and you're going out and you're, you're saying things and you're debating things that you've heard, it's not always accurate. So, uh, and I know pastors that I've sat under that have taught things or said things that were incorrect that I had to go back. I don't know if I had to, but I went back and said, this was incorrect. You shouldn't be saying this from the platform or at any time. So I think that uh, it doesn't mean that they're a false prophet. It just means that they have growth to do. There's things to grow in, and we need to pray for our pastors. We need to pray for our teachers. I hope that all you people are praying for me. I don't want to be coming here and saying something stupid or off the wall or in inaccurate just because it's something I feel, think, or was told, and I didn't look it up. You know. But uh, on the other side of that, there are pastors who are, uh, I would say, indicative of being false prophet because they're constantly teaching false teachings. And then that in that situation, I would say, yeah, probably. Well, I guess from my perspective, I'm thinking about someone who might teach something incorrectly. It may not be anything more than they're just not 
a real Bible scholar academically where they have all the knowledge, but they don't maybe have 100% of the details down or because of the um, not knowing, you know, the Greek and the Hebrew translations to properly understand them. Yeah, and um, but even then, if you're if you're in a place of leadership, whether you're a missionary, a pastor, a teacher, whether you're at the level of I, I'm a missionary or pastor of a small church or a large church or a teacher at a, a Bible teacher at a high school or a professor at a university, or you have a you know a program where you're teaching around the world, you need to be prepared, and what you teach should be accurate. You should at least study what you're doing. I know that there's a, there are some pastors that have staff members do all the research. Then they'll take the research, preach the sermon and find that some of that research was incorrect and he'll start preaching incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And this isn't because he, you know, believes that way. It's because he was given it to him and he didn't research it out. And I think it's our responsibility to research our uh, teaching. Well, I guess, too, there could be a difference between someone who maybe doesn't 100 percent relay the information correctly versus someone who intentionally is changing different teachings from the Bible to suit their agenda. So one of the problems we have is that, uh, unfortunately, Christendom is divided by theologies. Uh, you have Armenian theology of Wesleyan theology, which is basically the two are almost together the same. Then you have Calvinist uh, theology, and then you have theologies of, you know, your own or whatever. But the two main ones are your Wesleyan Armenian and then your Calvinist. So the problem lies is if you believe in one of these theologies so intently that you look at the scriptures and you make them fit your theology. I've known a, pa- heard of, heard a pastor one time teach and went to a word in a structure of uh, a paragraph he was reading, stopped, and then said, oh, by the way, this word, let's look it up. Uh, and not look it up, but by the way, the, the word here is, he named it what it was in the Greek and says, it doesn't mean what it says here in English. It really means this other word, which changes the entire teaching right there in the passage. So I thought, that sounds weird. It doesn't even fit. So I looked up the word in the Greek myself at the time I'm sitting there. And sure enough, it does mean what he says, but it also meant the other. So what he said was, it doesn't mean these at all. So what he did was he took that passage to fit his theology and ignored and threw away what could have been the correct teaching just to stick his word in there. That I see is terribly wrong. You shouldn't be stuck to your own theology. You should be able to make your theology fit the scriptures. But in that sense, it doesn't make them a false prophet. It just means they're not properly teaching. Yeah, I I think they're deluded, too. I I probably shouldn't say that. But, you know, when people do that, it's terrible. Well, I guess the interpretation of uh, what's correct or incorrect, as you mentioned, could be tied back to the different theologies out there, including, you know, the Catholic and Orthodox beliefs, the Armenian Wesleyan beliefs. And so if you follow one particular uh, 
ideology, then you're going to see the teaching of someone else as being incorrect. So I guess the best thing is just to read the Bible and do what it says. Yeah, it really is a good And not get hung up on the details and just be aware if someone is actually completely teaching the scripture in a way to fit an agenda that isn't biblical. Yeah, because you could live in such a nonchalant, oh, well, whatever I do is okay. Or you can live in such a restricted, oh, no, if I do something wrong, I better ask Jesus to forgive me every second of the day or I'll go to hell if I, if I don't. I mean, we can't live either way. There's, there's you know, a middle ground here. We need to understand the scriptures talk about living free. I can do anything I want as a believer. However, there are things I don't do because my testimony will reflect, you know, Jesus. And that's what we need to watch for. Okay. And I know you're getting close to running out of time, but uh, there's try and get a couple more questions. And uh, this was uh, another one from Eastern Europe. It says, when people say Jesus is coming soon, does that mean the rapture or the second coming? Or are they the same thing? Well, it could mean either one. When uh, when Jesus says, uh, I will be coming, he's talking about the second coming. Uh, we're not, he's not basically talking about the rapture. The, the rapture is talked about in Thessalonians. It's talked about, I believe, in, in um, I'm not sure if Isaiah or somewhere in the Old Testament. Um, but, but the big look, like when he talks about the day of the Lord, you know, or the second coming, those two phrases are the same day. And that would be, it's when, Je- when Jesus returns to live here during the millennium, okay? The rapture is something where we are caught up and meet him in, in the air. Are two different uh, time stamps. So the important thing to remember is that uh, Jesus has promised to return. Correct. Okay. And probably we can fit in one last question. Uh, it's... Uh, from the United States, it says, where in the Bible does it say, if Jesus is not your Lord, he can't be your Savior? Well, it doesn't say that. I know I gave a I gave a, a program several weeks ago about be, Lord, be Jesus being Lord of your life. And I know I did say that if he's not your Lord, he can't be your Savior. Okay. And, and I'm not, maybe I didn't get it clear. Um, but... For us to be a believer, I mean, one of the bad things that we're, we've we've picked up on, we, and I think that we human type people tend to do this easily. We pick up stuff that makes it feel good, sound good, easier for our lives, and we don't want to live the harder. We don't want to put the effort in, and I think that's where our problem is. So that being said, um, Jesus says basically we need to make Him Lord of our life, and John. When he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you know, or you'll not have everlasting life. He's talking about making me Lord of him, Lord of our lives, becoming like him is what it's all about. And when we read other things like in Acts, when the guys, people came up to Peter, and they say, well, how, what is it that I need to be saved? And they say, call on the Lord Jesus. In Romans, Paul talks about, make, you know, confessing him as Lord of your life. It never, ever, ever says in the Bible anywhere that we confess Jesus as our Savior 
It never says anywhere in the Bible that we make him our Savior. That's not even our responsibility. That's Jesus' responsibility to become our Savior. We make him our Lord. And that's where it talks about all through the Bible. Old Testament is included. We make God the Lord of our life. We turn to him and we honor him, worship him. That makes you know him Lord of our lives. That's our responsibility. We can't make God or Jesus our Savior. He's become our Savior by the fact that we turn to him and make him Lord of our life. And then he automatically becomes our Savior. That's his responsibility. And in the scriptures, you'll find that it's consistent all through the scriptures. It's not consistent when you say, oh, Jesus is my Savior and not my Lord. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And it never says that Jesus... You know, I ask him, in, uh, I accept him as my savior, so I'm a Christian. That's not theologically or biblically correct either. So his act of dying on the cross is what made him the savior of the world. And then when we accept Christ as our Lord, then that's what you're referring to. Yeah, and it's more than him dying on the cross. It's the fact that he rose from the from right. dead and he ascended into heaven. Those, those also have to be, in that well, as whole a thing. whole co cohesive group right. thing. Yes. We can't forget that because a lot of people died on the cross. Right. And nobody rose from the dead and nobody ascended into heaven but Jesus. Well, I guess what I was saying is, you know, the whole plan of what happened from his dying on the cross, his resurrection right. and everything, it's all one together. But Savior of the world, he's our Savior when we make him our Lord. Right. Without that, we're yeah. just sinners. Exactly. Exactly. Otherwise, everybody in the world is saved. Right, which is not happening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think that is all the time we have for questions, and we covered most of them, so I think we did good. Well, we got a couple minutes left. Um, let me just say it. So it's really, I'm glad you're here. Yes, it's, it's fun. It's good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I pop in every now and then. You know, we had a really neat time uh, in November, went to Moldova. I didn't talk a lot about this. And I did two programs with two missionaries uh, from different groups in Moldova. And they're really good. I think that the people there in Moldova are doing amazing work. Um, one of the things I see in Moldova, and I'm giving you this push because I'm just told it, it's got my heart. And I'm seeing God at work in Moldova. And there was the uh, vice president of Campus Crusade for Christ was there. And he spoke to all the missionaries over there. The whole room was filled. And he said something. He says, God is at work in Moldova. It is evident that God mm -hmm. is at work there. He says, but you don't know for how long. We don't know how long God will work in, in Moldova. It's like you look at the United States. There were periods of time when it was evident God was working in the United States. Nowadays, it's like, you know, it's really hard. I mean, there's a few here and a few there. But overall, even you know, people who are, say, they're Christians are ruling God out of their lives or out of the government or out of uh, their city or whatever it is. And it's really difficult. Well, I think when people decide to turn their back on God, then he's, you know, it's difficult. Yeah. And and I, you know, if you've never watched this person or listened to them, there's a guy named Jonathan Kahn. And um, he teaches about the fact that we believers in the United States need to get right with God. We need to seek him out because there's a lot of 
so-called believers, so-called Christians who are living sinful lives. And that's what happened in Isaiah when they were living sinful lives. What happened? Well, God allowed Babylon to come over and take them over. And if we do the same thing, it kind of gives us the same kind of premise. Well, you know, if we do that, we're allowing the hedge of protection that God has given us through all these years to be gone. Well, I, I think in the United States and other Western countries, people are so caught up in their day-to-day -day lives that God has just taken a back seat to all their other yeah. activities. And according to what I teach, God needs to be center, front and center in every relationship and everything you are and everything you do. Right. Jesus so, be the center of my life. There you go. So, well, it was really a pleasure today. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm so glad you came. <laughs> And uh, my other moderator, um, Angela, couldn't make it today. So you're a good fill-in. <laughs> Thank you. So everybody, you have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you again uh, later. And uh, thank you so much. And aloha. Alan Cutting and the Believer's Journey radio program seeks to teach the Word of God in a clear and practical manner. For more information, please visit the podcast page at am630theword.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.